We are continuing this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, so if you have a Bible, you may want to turn there. We have it printed in the bulletin for you. But, uh, I encourage people to use their Bibles and bring them, if you've got them, um, or your iPhone. We're going to start at uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 and work toward the end of the chapter, although we're not going to get there to the end this morning. But in this letter of missionary introduction, which is uh, what I believe this letter is, um, the Apostle Paul is seeking to enlist the support of the church in Rome, a church he didn't plant. And while we cannot say for certain, it seems that a likely reason why Paul wanted the support of the Roman church is because he was interested in moving his base of operations from Antioch, which was sort of in the east, to a city that was much further west, like Rome, which would then give him better access to the far western mission fields, which uh, as yet were unexplored. He wanted to eventually get to Spain. It would be easier to do that from Rome. And so as part of Paul's trying to make that move, and when the confidence and support of the Roman church, he takes the time uh, in this letter to, to, to lay out his core beliefs with regard to what God had revealed about himself and what he's doing with his creation and with his creatures, and in particular with his own people and through his son Jesus. And so by laying out this summary of his beliefs for the Roman Christians who don't know Paul all that well, they know of him, some of them know him, but Paul's hope is that by doing this, they'll see that he's a good guy, that he's a solid guy, uh, a guy they can trust and support, get behind, and as a result, they need not worry about him or his message. And so Paul does this. He proceeds to present this letter, the kind of the guts of his theology. And as he does so, he starts with a kind of theme uh, or thesis statement and chapter 1, 16 to 17, about how the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and uh, how that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who will believe, and how it delivers people from the wrath of God by means of a righteousness or a right standing with God that God himself supplies and God actually secures. And following that, Paul then launches into this first main subsection of the letter, which he wants to show how all people, all people are in fact sinful and unrighteous and are as a result already now experiencing the wrath of God, at least in a partial way, and will one day experience it fully and completely if, if their unrighteousness is allowed to remain unaddressed and their sin not dealt with. In short, Paul is endeavoring to show how all people all people are in need of this righteousness that he's already talked about that only God can provide and which people cannot achieve for themselves. Now Paul's first efforts at showing the need for this external as opposed to internal righteousness were spent taking aim at humanity in general. And only recently has he turned his attention to addressing a small subset of humanity in general, namely his Jewish brothers and sisters 
whom, because Paul was Jewish himself, he knows that very likely they are not hearing what he's been saying so far. And Paul knows that they would not typically regard themselves as being liable to the same dangers and warnings and indictments that he is describing for the rest of the world, that is, what they would regard as the Gentile world. On the contrary, Paul knows that if anything, his Jewish brothers and uh, sisters are liable to regard themselves as special cases, as exceptions for whom the things he has been saying so far have little or no relevance. Stott writes helpfully about this. He says, Paul in these verses anticipates and responds to Jewish objections to what he's written. He imagines Jews protesting somewhat as follows. Surely, Paul, they would say, surely you can't possibly treat us as if we were no different from Gentile outsiders. Have you forgotten that we've been given both the law, the revelation of God, and circumcision, the sign of the covenant of God? Have you overlooked the fact that these three privileges of covenant and circumcision and law are themselves tokens of the greatest privilege of all that God chose us to be His special people? Are you saying, Paul, that we Jews who've been uniquely favored by God's election are no better off than the Gentiles? Is that what you're saying? How can you disregard these peculiar blessings of ours which distinguish us from the Gentiles and protect us from God's judgment? In reply to such questions, Paul writes about the law in verses 2, 17 to 24 and about circumcision in 2, 25 to 29. So as Stott has suggested in the passage before us this morning, Paul is working hard to get the attention of his Jewish brothers and sisters and to try to deliver them from some of their misguided understandings on some very crucial matters about themselves and their standing before God. Before we turn more fully to look into that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help us now by your spirit to humble ourselves before your word and so be in the right posture to hear you rightly and to do more than hear you but to also respond to you in faith and with repentance where necessary in order that your word will have its way with us and achieve that good result that can only come as you wield these truths like a scalpel to cut away and remove the various spiritual cancers that take hold of us and threaten to undo us. Thank you for your kindness to us in this moment and in every moment. And thank you for your grace that is greater than our sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Now, because there's a lot here, and we're not going to try and cover all of 2.17 to 29 in one hit, but we'll break it up into at least two smaller units. And with that sort of explanation, I want you to listen now to the passage. And even though we're only going to look at a portion of it, I want to read the whole thing because I do think it all kind of holds together as a unit. So we'll go from 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law 
and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I want to start by looking at that first section in those verses, verses 17 to 20. And if we just start there, look at that for a minute, and if you look carefully you might see how really you can divide even those four verses into two parts. In the first part, verses 17 to 18, we get essentially some descriptions of the Jewish people and some of the privileges that they enjoyed. And the words and phrases used here are not just Paul's language. They're actually how the Jews saw themselves, how things were for them, how they described themselves. If you look in uh, Jewish literature that was being written during this same time period, you would find these very same phrases and descriptions being used. For starters, Paul says in verse 17, If you call yourself a Jew, which is a reference to the Jewish person's identity and strong sense of belonging to this special class of people, the chosen people of God. The Jews in Paul's day placed great stock in their identity. Additionally, the Jews were quite aware, quite proud of the fact that they had been entrusted, that they of all people had been entrusted with the law of God and relied on the law of God. And and even, no doubt, on the basis of that law, boasted in the God who had been revealed to them. Further, they were the ones who, because they had God's revelation, knew what God's will was. That is, they had a general idea about what God was doing in the world. What he had done. And and was even planning on doing, at least to a certain extent, that he'd revealed. They knew something about God's overall and redemptive purposes. They knew what true excellence was, as defined by God and not as defined by some other source. And at this stage, as Piper points out, Um, 
as evangelical Christians, we ought to be leaning forward a little bit. We ought to be interested in what Paul is getting ready to say here. And the reason is because Paul's addressing his Jewish brothers and sisters, a group who can be referred to as the people of the book. They were people who had been entrusted with a revelation of God, with the oracles of God, as Paul puts it. And they were quite proud of that fact. And not only had they been entrusted with it, uh, they were very familiar with it. They used it. They structured their life and practice around it. And yet in spite of that and in spite of the incredible advantage that that was and could have and should have been, something went wrong for them as the people of the book. They got off the rails somehow, and Paul's about to talk about that, and that ought to be some, of some pretty significant interest to us, since we too are a people of the book. We too have the revelation of God, an even fuller revelation than the people in Paul's day. We too have been shaped by that revelation. We take it seriously for the most part. And so we have some things in common with the people Paul's addressing here. And just having that one thing in common, being a people of the book ourselves, ought to be enough to pique our interest. So let me invite you to lean forward as we continue and see what Paul says. And after talking about some of the ways in which the Jews in Paul's day saw themselves, and after outlining some of the privileges that they enjoyed and which could have and perhaps should have led to good things for them, Paul goes on in verses 19 to 20 to describe something a little different. In those two verses, there's a shift in emphasis. And one writer describes it this way. He says, notice the difference between these two groups of claims. The first group in verses 17 to 18 simply describes the Jews' own experience with the law, not how it affects the way they relate to others. The rest, they rest in it and they boast in God and uh, they know His will. They recognize excellent things. But in the second group, verses 19 to 20, the entire focus is on what the Jews do with all this in relation to others. They guide, they shine, they correct, they teach. And here again, as with the first set of descriptors, the phrases found in verses 19 and 20 are actually ones that appear in Jewish literature of that period. They really did see themselves in these ways, even described themselves as guides to the blind, as lights to those in darkness, as instructors to the foolish, and teachers of children. But notice, please, the inherent condescension in each of those descriptions with references to the blind and those in darkness those who are foolish, and those who are children. And it's at this point in the passage that Paul shifts gears. He's been talking about a number of different ways in which the Jews of his day saw themselves and their relationship or role with regard to others. 
But now Paul has some questions for them. He wants to take the discussion in a different direction. One commentator summarizes it well. He says, Paul uses eight verbs to describe aspects of Jewish self-consciousness and self-confidence. And in these eight statements, Paul is given a straightforward account of Jewish people in their double relation to the law. Being instructed, they instruct. Being taught, they teach. But now Paul turns the tables on them. They do not live up to their knowledge. They do not practice what they preach. Following his eight verbs which portray their identity, he asks five rhetorical questions which draw attention to their inconsistency. Verse 21, Paul asks the question, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And in that question, I believe he reveals a fundamental misunderstanding and malpractice even amongst his Jewish brothers and sisters who took great pride in their identity and privilege and in particular in themselves as possessors of the law of God. And their knowledge of the law, instead of leading them to humility and a better and better understanding of their own sin and pride and their own heart and their great need for God's grace and mercy, instead of all that, their possession of and knowledge of the law for them all too easily and all too often became a means of self-promotion, a means by which they made themselves feel morally superior or made others feel morally inferior or both. And following that in verses 21 to 23, 21b to 23, Paul gives, goes a step further in challenging his Jewish brothers and sisters with a series of rhetorical questions dealing with theft adultery, and idolatry, and which, as the quotation just given shows, are there to highlight the inconsistency and hypocrisy that existed amongst the Jews. If you recall from Jesus' own ministry, the charge of hypocrisy that uh, was perhaps one of the most common ones that he leveled against the scribes and the Pharisees. And Paul here is simply following in Jesus' own footsteps in pointing out the same kinds of things. And the answer to each of his rhetorical questions here is yes. Yes, they were thieves. Yes, they were adulterers. Yes, they were idolaters. Yes, in spite of their possession of the law, which they were so proud of, in spite of their possession of the law, and their often presumed moral superiority, the reality was that the Jews, with all their advantages and privileges, were as prone to commit the most glaring of sins as the Gentiles upon whom they looked down with regular condescension. And ironically, the effect of their behavior was to provoke the further sin of blasphemy on the lips of the Gentiles on account of the rampant hypocrisy amongst the Jews. Now Paul's actually going to have more to say to his Jewish brothers and sisters in verses 25 to 29 
when he talks about the whole matter of circumcision. But uh, we'll leave that for our next study. And I want to take a few minutes to think about some of the implications of just a little bit that we see in this text so far. And in thinking about that, I want to highlight um, a few dangers for us to avoid, and which I believe arise from this passage. Firstly, there's the danger of placing a greater value on chosenness than on faithfulness. Throughout this passage, Paul is addressing his Jewish brothers and sisters over the fact that they placed so much value in their Jewishness, in the fact that they were God's chosen people, in the fact that they had been entrusted with the law and that they had the sign of the covenant and circumcision. Great confidence in that. Great confidence in those sort of realities, but quite apart from the reality of their life and their practice. Their hearts were hard and unresponsive toward the things of God, yet they had a false confidence in their security and their standing simply because they formally and externally identified themselves as belonging to the people of God. In a similar fashion, many people, I think especially in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, um, because, uh, because of our uh, strength of teaching on doctrine often, we can often place a greater confidence in, in a bare doctrine like election, for example, and, uh, and our understanding of it, and feel a sense of false assurance that arises simply from that understanding but which is divorced from the realities of day-to-day life. And so is based actually on a misunderstanding of the doctrine itself. Uh, Lig Duncan has this to say on that subject. He says, If you're truly elected, you're also transformed. So if you say that you're the elect of God, if you say you're chosen of God, and God has not transformed your life, if you've not become a doer of the law as well as a hearer of the law, then you're not elect. In other words, Paul in Romans points you to the proper results and effects of election. He says, if those things aren't there, you may be deluded. If you don't have a transformed life, or at least a being transformed life, accompanying this claim of a special relationship with God, that's a good sign that something is badly out of order. As we saw in a previous study, while we are not justified by our works, nor are we saved by them or because of them, neither are we saved apart from them. How we live matters. Jesus taught very clearly about trees bearing fruit. Secondly, there's a danger of misusing the law of God, the word of God, the scriptures, as a means of self-promotion. To assert a superior moral standing or as a vehicle for pride, or to assert a superior spiritual understanding, or primarily as a means of passing judgment on those around us. Uh, This went on regularly in Paul's day. It was a typical feature in Jewish-Gentile relations. And over against that, and as a counter 
to that sort of danger, uh, we ought to see the Scriptures, first and foremost, as the means of grace that God uses to show us Himself and His holiness, but then at the same time show us ourselves in our great brokenness, in our need of mercy and forgiveness, our need to repent over and over again. As Piper puts it, there's a huge danger, a huge temptation for us that we will use the Scriptures primarily to set each other right rather than to repent ourselves. Thirdly, there is a danger of substituting and perhaps confusing knowledge of God's Word for submission to God's Word. The Jews in Paul's day were confident not only that they had been entrusted with the law, but also that they understood it. They knew the law, and they saw themselves as teachers of others, as lights to those in darkness, as instructors of the foolish. But Paul challenged them on this as uh, all their knowledge and their ability to teach and instruct others did not somehow translate into any greater submission to the law. We have to avoid the same danger. It's one thing to understand a truth and even be able to explain it brilliantly and clearly. It's quite another to humbly submit oneself to that same truth. They're not the same thing. We'll have more to say about that when we pick this passage up again. But as we pause in our study of it, uh, remember how all this fits in with what Paul is doing. Right? Paul is in the process here, in this part of the letter, of showing how all people... Gentiles and Jews both are unrighteous in themselves and stand equally guilty before God. All the advantages of the Jews notwithstanding. The place that Paul is taking us to is Romans 3, 9 to 10, which reads, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. That's where Paul is taking us in this section of the letter. That's where he's heading. And he, does, he wants to make sure that everybody that comes through it, whether Jew or Gentile, they understand that none is righteous. Not even one. And he's given us a foretaste of the gospel in chapter 1. He's now making a case for the absolute hopelessness of humanity before a holy God, before he comes back to a full-blown explanation of it in the next section of his letter. He's giving us the bad news that will help us to see why the good news is so good. That's what he's doing right here. He's preparing us for that. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to learn 
from the example that Paul makes of his own brothers and sisters in his own day in the Jewish faith who had a, a formal relationship to you, with you, um, or even possessors of the law, but whose hearts were far from you and um, could understand and explain things to which they had never really bowed the knee or submitted. Father, help us to not be like that. Please invade our hearts by your Spirit and bring us to the place where we are broken before you, where we are submissive and receptive to your Word and to your Spirit's work. Help us to see, as Paul was hoping that his readers would see, um, our position before you that apart from your righteousness, apart from what you have supplied through your Son, Jesus, uh, we would be lost. We would be without excuse. We would be subject to uh, the full wrath of a holy God. We thank you, Father, that in your mercy you deliver us from that. And I pray, Father, that as we respond to you and to that, that there will be that evidence that you speak of even in these very chapters, that you are there, that you are resonant within us, that your spirit is working, that that transformation is taking place, that that fruit that gives evidence of what sort of tree we are and have become. I pray, Father, that all of that would show and in an increasing fashion for each one of us Help us to take seriously the warning that's inherent in this passage uh, for us, for friends, for family. And Father, if that means uh, motivating us to um, speak up, to open our mouths and share uh, the gospel and explain clearly about Jesus to our friends and family, then Father, please give us the courage to do that to follow through on that, to not be afraid of the opinions of others, but to be more fearful of you, more respectful of you, more hopeful for what you can do as you draw people to yourself. Father, help us to see the truth of these things, not only for ourselves, but for ourselves as your ambassadors, as your evangelists. Please work through us Make us effective and draw people to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now take up an offering for those who want to support the work of the church at this time.